From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis never said the word migrant in his State of the State speech, despite arrivals that have left cities struggling to provide. So we'll ask him about it. We are working closely with all of our municipalities in helping to meet their needs. And in the case of Denver, of course, front of mind is the migrant crisis they're facing. We worked with the Joint Budget Committee to get $5 million out the door. We sat down with Polis shortly after he addressed lawmakers who will once again make or break his vision for housing and transportation. Reaction to his speech as well from a key Republican lawmaker in El Paso County. What I think was most disappointing is that he talks about a Colorado for all, but barely recognized rural Colorado. And a song that Dr. King first heard in Denver and would never forget. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. I'm Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The sort of house you can afford and how you get around matter to Governor Jared Polis. In his State of the State speech Thursday, he reiterated his vision for cheaper, greener communities. The thing about a speech is it doesn't allow for follow-up questions, which is why afterwards we sat down with the governor in his Capitol office to discuss what was in this speech, and this is important, what wasn't. Governor, thank you for being with us. Thanks for joining me, Ryan, to talk about our State of the State address. By my count, in that address, you said train seven times. Mixing your transportation metaphors, you called a train between Denver and the mountains, specifically Steamboat Springs, a moonshot. Uh, And you link transit to more affordable housing. Help us understand the concrete steps you want the legislature to take this session to achieve this vision. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, And as I said, we have the planes and automobiles. We just need the trains. That's the old Steve Martin movie reference. Um, And yes, we do need passenger rail in Colorado. Uh, Two specific corridors we talked about. One is front range passenger rail, Pueblo to Fort Collins. And that includes finally fulfilling the behind-schedule Fast Tracks promise, which is Denver, Boulder, Longmont. Right now they have buses. uh, There are buses in different parts of our state. Buses are a part of what we want to expand. Uh, We operate, meaning we the state, Colorado Department of Transportation, Bustang, Ski Stang, Pegasus, 300,000 Coloradans took those last year. So it's more than a drop in a bucket. That's actually 300,000 less cars on the road and less traffic. We need to do more. It ties in to passenger rail, because very often buses are for that final leg to get to your destination. So if you can get from Fort Collins to Denver, Colorado Springs to Denver, and yes, Denver to Steamboat or Winter Park, but also for workers in Hayden and Craig that are needed in the resort communities to commute. The reason we have this really once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to accelerate passenger rail in Colorado is because of the Federal Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that invests over $60 billion in new rail corridors in the country. It's simply a question of whether Colorado will be one of those corridors and pull down our fair share to deliver 
on this promise. This is all using existing rail that's in the ground. It's used for freight today. Some of it needs some capital improvements for safety. But by getting this right, working with the Front Range Rail District, CDOT, the legislature, RTD, and other transit agencies, I truly believe that we can deliver on all of these passenger rail promises this decade and get many of them locked in by our sesquicentennial, which is 2026. Sesquicentennial, the state's 150th birthday. When you talk about corridors, you picture housing on those corridors. So a big part of the speech today uh, is about transit-oriented communities. So yes, it's about having access to bus and rail, but it's also more people should have the opportunity to live affordably near a bus and rail stop. And so it's both of those, and the two very much go hand in hand, because the more people live close to transit and for whom it's convenient, the more customers there are for bus and rail, and that drives the economy of scale. It drives the efficiency and reduces the cost, increases the scheduled service for those transit opportunities. So they all really tie together. Is it possible you are too reliant on federal dollars for this? In other words, there's a presidential election this year, and there's no guarantee that Mr. Biden will remain in the White House. Well, the money's already been passed by Congress. Uh, It would take, yes, an act of a future Congress. That means both the House, the Senate, and a president, if they were to try to rescind that or to spend it in a different way. But the money's already been appropriated. You know, as somebody who has served in Congress for a period of time, I would say it's not impossible, as you indicated, but it's, it's unlikely. I'm fascinated by this. Your administration in a climate letter has suggested that toll revenues could pay for trains and transit. Should drivers be prepared for higher tolls? Um, you know, that's, it's not a, I think it's more a proposal of using some existing toll revenue for that. We believe it can. Uh, if we build private lanes, uh, and there are some being built through public-private partnerships, uh, I do think it's fair that some of that money and tolls that people pay should go towards increased transit services, whether it's bus or passenger rail might depend on the area. But I do believe that there are opportunities in that area as we look at how we build out transit and mobility across the state. To the core of my first question, which is what you want the legislature to do about this vision. I mean, on housing in particular, last year you took a stab at making it easier to build dense housing. So not just single-family homes, but duplexes and condos and casitas, overriding local zoning to some extent and giving property owners more options. That sweeping land use bill failed, drew a lot of criticism for ignoring local input. And now you're asking the legislature to approach this in a more piecemeal way. I don't know, does that let them avoid the hardest changes that you think are necessary? Well, I think there's, you know, rather than one big bill, there's going to be six or seven or eight bills that reduce the cost of housing. One of the ones I focus on today is the transit-oriented community one. This can only be done in an interjurisdictional way because whether it's a bus or passenger rail, it might go across 26 municipalities and 12 counties. So how do you plan for this in a cohesive way? And obviously the state is a key convener in those conversations. Uh, We want to position ourselves to support 
anything that reduces housing costs. And that's why there were a broad range of things. Some were just a laundry list I put out there. It could be fire insurance reform. It could be construction defects reform, getting rid of parking requirements above and beyond what the market uh, wants. So any of those cost drivers, we're happy to work with legislators on. Many of those have bills. Some are bipartisan. Uh, and we hope that we can get most, if not all of them, across the finish line. So it starts moving the right way rather than the wrong way in our state. What did you learn here? You tried to serve a full meal last year, and this is more of a buffet, I guess. Why, why is a buffet well, more I think, I think one big piece uh, that we didn't have last year that I think enhances it is the whole piece around transit. We, our, my original plan would be let's do that land use piece last year. We were going to do transit this year anyway. But the reason I think they work better in tandem is part of what we heard from mayors is, oh, this transit-oriented community stuff sounds great, but if we do it, how do we make sure that the transit is actually delivered? And our only answer at that point is, oh, wait till next year, and we'll do that next session. Now we're doing them at the same time. We're taking both transit-oriented development and transit. People need confidence in the transit to be there. And frankly, there's a bad flavor in, in the mouths of some cities. Longmont, for instance, Westminster, they put money in Broomfield into depots and stations, and the transit was never delivered that they were promised and expected. Mm. So I think by handling these both together, we can address the concerns that, yes, the transit will be there in spades. Even when cities try to address housing, they often face incredible backlash from property owners who want growth and density somewhere else. Do you think property owners in some ways need to be saved from themselves? Yeah, we really need to lean into property rights. Uh, Montana did a similar set of reforms facing record increases in many of their metropolitan areas where you say, look, if you're the owner of your house, you should be able to build an accessory dwelling unit and, and, and have a tenant there if you choose, right? And what does that mean? They're not impossible to build today, Ryan, but it can often take a year and a half of paperwork, hiring lawyers and planners, $15,000, $20,000. Only then do you get to building it. If we can eliminate that cost, reduce the time, make it easier, I know that homeowners want to step up and be part of the problem, part of the answer to the problem. <laughs> we had uh, a homeowner here today who built an accessory dwelling unit in Denver. In addition to providing a lower cost unit for a family of four that he rents to, provide some additional income for him to keep up with rising costs. So where they can create a win-win, whether it's accessory dwelling units, whether it's transit-oriented development, these are really a way we can make Colorado more affordable rather than less affordable. In this session, you hope to increase funding for schools. You are looking for a long-term solution to keeping property taxes low, and you're trying to increase affordable housing. You still want to cut income taxes. Is that combo possible? Like, don't Coloradans need to pay more to get more? Well, you're talking about a lot of different things there. Uh, and by the way, I would say teachers are among the professionals that need more housing opportunities that they can afford close to work our frontline workers, nurses, firefighters, teachers, law enforcement um, should be able to afford to live in the communities they serve. On the income tax side, we're simply talking about surplus money, so not money that could otherwise be spent. There's a lot going on in your question, but I would just say that in the world of education, and yes, we plan to uh, eliminate the budget stabilization factor and fully fund our public schools. This was kind but of an IOU the state gave schools that has been around for a long for time 15 now. years. It'll be 15 years. Um, but we also need to make housing more affordable for teachers, paraprofessionals, principals, and people that work in education, among other fields. So you think this is all possible and that they don't create some inherent tension. Uh, you had a line that drew, like, no response from the room 
which you remarked on in the speech. Uh, this is the line. Of course, cutting the income tax isn't a panacea, but to spur continued economic growth, it should be a significant part of progressive reforms to Tabor refunds. What kind of reforms do you think would be a fair trade-off for that kind of income tax cut? Well, I think this is where we hope Republicans and Democrats are able to work together. I think Republicans are very supportive of cutting the income tax. Democrats have been very supportive of progressive reforms to Tabor refunds. What does that mean? By the way, it means things like the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit. And so I think the challenge is to figure out how we can pair those two into a solution that appeals to moderates, conservatives, progressives. Uh, and uh, that's really the work that we hope to do uh, with members of the legislature. Are you reaping political rewards for supporting cutting taxes without taking political risks to make it happen? Well, uh, there were two uh, tax cuts at the ballot box that I supported that passed. We've cut the income tax twice since I've been governor. Uh, but it did have to go around the legislature rather than through it, which is fine. That's how also we got preschool referred to the ballot and passed. These were citizen initiatives. Uh, but I'm for cutting taxes however we do it. And I think it's always better if we can figure out a way to work with legislators to provide that surety that people's income tax, property tax, we also mentioned sales tax, can go down so we don't over-collect taxes only to be forced to refund them a year later. On that IOU to schools that's finally being paid off, districts from Denver to Grand Junction have actually closed schools because of low enrollment. Is Colorado going to be educating fewer children Governor? It's hard to say, Ryan. I, I mean, certainly there's growing districts and there's shrinking districts. Even within districts like Denver and Jeffco, there's just demographic shifts where they're building schools in some areas, closing schools in others. Uh, that's the norm. Uh, families move. Some areas have an aging population, less kids in five or 10 years. You have other areas that young families move into. Uh, in general, I would say probably we will have more kids in public school in Colorado in 10 years and 20 years. Uh, probably a lower amount relative to our population as our population ages, but I think the net amount will likely be larger in 10 and 15 years. Outside the Capitol, as you delivered your State of the State address, there was a mix of protesters demonstrating for stronger climate policy and in support of Palestinians. Jared Polis, we see you! believe Colorado has any role to play in what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now? Well, you know, first of all, there's always uh, people here at the Capitol expressing their free speech rights. And as you indicated, I think there were several different causes people were talking about today. And I'm sure that'll be the case throughout the session. And as long as it's uh, peaceful and they're not threatening anybody, we hope that people do get to express their free speech. And there's a dimension to public safety that's related. And I highlighted that today. And that's we are trying to support uh, particularly communities of faith that have been targeted for uh, specific violence during these challenging times, generally as a result of the Hamas attack on Israel. Uh, we had a Fort Collins Islamic Center. We had Beth Jacobs, a private Jewish school from Denver. And the state is supporting additional security grants, including cameras, better glass. These are the types of improvements that have been made in areas that might be facing targeted acts of violence in our state. And so you see the state purview on this issue pretty well within the boundaries of Colorado. I don't hear you saying we need resolutions and declarations about what's happening abroad. 
Well, I think American foreign policy matters. Colorado does not have a foreign policy. We are a state. But obviously, as a legislative matter, uh, I think that the biggest focus should be on making sure that Coloradans who are Jewish, who are Palestinian, who are Muslim, who are Christian, feel safe in their places of worship, that we create uh, an atmosphere that supports free speech, but also make sure that nobody is threatened or attacked. You did not mention migrants in your state of the state. I'm sure there are some mayors who would say that's the most pressing issue they face now. I mean, Denver is talking about budget cuts because the city spent so much on services for new arrivals. I know Denver's mayor, Mike Johnston, was in the audience for your speech. You, you mentioned him. Why the omission? Well, I think we, first of all, the the focus of our speech uh, was on matters of statewide concern, and one of them relates to uh, migrants, and that is housing. It relates to homelessness, it relates to migrants, it relates to every Coloradan. Uh, There's people who have been here for decades who can't afford a home, and there's people who are homeless, and there's people that arrived recently that need a shelter over the head, particularly when it's cold. So uh, that's an area where we appreciate the leadership of not only the four mayors that were in the room, but mayors across the state. Uh, We are working closely with all of our municipalities in helping to meet their needs. And in the case of Denver, of course, front of mind is the migrant crisis they're facing. We worked with the Joint Budget Committee uh, to get $5 million out the door, and the state is contracting with non-governmental organizations to provide legal services to help asylum seekers process their work permits. Uh, We're also assisting with uh, transit and logistics around the influx of migrants in Denver. So you think there's enough state coordination among cities, nonprofits, volunteer groups, you, you don't well, see I would a bigger the, the role big, for the, coordination? The, the big piece, there's a much bigger role for coordination, and the big piece that's missing is the federal coordination piece. So this is fundamentally, no matter how you look at it, immigration is a national issue. Colorado does not patrol our borders. It is the federal government's responsibility to secure our border, the federal government's responsibility to expeditiously process asylum claims. And yes, I agree with Mayor Johnston, it should be the federal government's responsibility to help pay uh, the city of Denver back and to a certain extent the state uh, for the services that we are providing because of the failure of federal action. The trouble is the mayor of Carbondale, for instance, where there were families living on the streets, that mayor can't call Joe Biden when more than 100 migrants arrive with no place to go. So should he be able to come to you for help? We're, again, we are always happy to work with any of our cities on the pressing issues they face. And it's homelessness, it's public safety. In some cities, it's migrants, it's drug use, it's behavioral health. And I view, you know, my role as governor is a partner with our cities. So we're always happy to talk to uh, the mayor of, of, of any town about how we can better meet the real life needs uh, that they're facing in their city. In Texas, Governor Greg Abbott is sending migrants to blue states, including Colorado. He's made a big deal out of the fact that he sees this as a Democratic problem. Uh, You are a Democratic governor in a state with all Democratic control of the legislature and the majority of the delegation in Washington. Do Do you think Abbott's winning this message battle? Well, look, I I know President Biden has called for stronger border security, better resources around processing asylum claims. It's Congress that's failed to act, and that's a Republican House. It's a Democratic Senate. 
Uh, they obviously need to get on the same page to be able to support the president and get the changes we need to resolve this crisis. Um, I share the frustration of Governor Abbott because at the end of the day, there's very little that Texas or Colorado or New York or Illinois or any of the other states affected can directly do. Uh, we have to live with a hand we're dealt by the failure of federal immigration policies. So it's time for the federal government, and that means Congress to step up. President Biden can only accomplish so much alone. By and large, it needs resources and legal changes, which only Congress can provide. And that would obviously be a more constructive way for Governor Abbott to devote his his efforts towards pushing to Congress to step up and finally secure our border and reform our broken immigration system. Finally, a public safety question. You reopened the investigation into Elijah McClain's death amid protests over police brutality and systemic racism. The trials exposed the degree to which McLean's humanity was not respected. His life was taken. One of the officers admitted on the stand he went against his training and wished he could do the encounter differently. And yet he and another officer were acquitted. Do you believe there are the right accountability measures in place? Or does the state need another way to hold a system accountable for a death in police custody where specific criminal acts were not apparently committed. And to be fair, there were also criminal convictions that came out of that investigation as well. Uh, You know, we're open to the discussion of who handles uh, these complaints against law enforcement entities. Obviously, it's a best practice to have a neighboring or a different jurisdiction handle in-house complaints. We're certainly open to the discussion about how that's best handled. Uh, We also, of course, have the redress through our civil court system, but I think that the criminal court system is a very important piece of making sure that people are safe. Governor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Governor Jared Polis speaking with me in his office at the Capitol Thursday. His staff circled back with some news. The state will send Carbondale just over $220,000 for migrant support. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with reaction to the governor's vision from a Republican leader in El Paso County. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. You can donate most vehicles to Colorado Public Radio, including cars, trucks, and motorcycles. And you can donate them in any condition, on one condition. The title has to be in your name. You'll also have to answer a few simple questions like, Where is your car? And when would you like us to pick it up? Simple work to make a big impact. Start the donation process now on the support page at CPR.org. We just heard my one-on-one interview with Democratic Governor Jared Polis following Thursday's State of the State speech. Now, Republican reaction from Assistant House Minority Leader Rose Puglisi. She represents El Paso County and spoke with me and our public affairs editor, Megan Verlee. For context, the GOP is in the minority in both the State House and Senate. Thanks for being with us, Leader. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Why don't we start with common ground? What did you hear that you can reasonably work with in this address? I really enjoyed that the governor talked about Tabor surpluses and that our people are overtaxed because we could not agree more. Um, Representative Bottoms and I, along with Senator Kirkmeyer, have an income tax reduction bill. Um, The governor in every one of his speeches has talked about reducing the income tax, and I hope he can find um, 20-plus Democrats to help support us in that effort to save people money. Uh, You're speaking, I believe, of Scott Bottoms and of Barbara Kirkmeyer, your fellow lawmakers. 
Um, yes. Okay, what's a non-starter in what you heard from Mr. Polis? You know, I'm going to say what what I think was most disappointing is that he talks about a Colorado for all, but barely recognized rural Colorado. There's going to be a lot of investment along um, the Front Range, especially in the Denver area and the Boulder area. But what are we doing for rural Colorado? Um, that was never really addressed. And the really big takeaway is, you know, everyone's talking about, and the speaker mentioned it yesterday as well, let's disagree better. But how can we disagree better when they consistently cut off Republicans and don't let us speak? And so I do hope that we will be turning a new leaf in this session where ideas that represent um, the whole state can come forward and not be shut down because they don't want to hear disagreement. Assistant Minority Leader, this is Megan Verley here. And uh, going back to that idea of rural Colorado and potentially not being prioritized in the, the speech there, what did you think of the governor's uh, talk about housing and development, his sort of revised approach of, of tackling it uh, element by element? I know uh, your caucus was fairly opposed to the land use bill last year. Do you think there are pieces of it that your members will get behind this year, or is this still the state trying to tell local governments how to how to grow? So I'll give Democrats credit where they deserve. Um, there are definitely some legislators in the House who have reached out to me and continued conversations around housing throughout the summer. I have not seen language. I've not seen bills. Um, I, I personally don't, um, you know, disagree with the alternative dwelling unit, the ADU conversation. I think that that's great. Um, I want to see what low cost transit and housing near transit looks like, what that cost is. You know, we have a lot of sound bites, but not solutions necessarily we can afford. And again, um, it doesn't affect all of Colorado. And so what are we doing to address the housing crisis in other parts of the state outside of the front range? So I think that there's some good conversations happening, um, but I want to see language to see exactly um, if we're incentivizing local governments as opposed to taking away their local government control. Representative, on the subject of how we get around transit and transportation, there was talk of train service that would connect Denver Union Station to the suburbs just west of there, and then on to rural areas like Craig and Hayden and Steamboat Springs. Is that something that you think Republicans can get behind? Is that a bipartisan rail line? (laughs) Um, and I'll be interested to see, there were some conversations, I work with some coal impacted communities throughout western Colorado, and um, you know, it's an intriguing idea about the passenger rail and using some of those lines. Again, I'd like to see more details and make sure it's something that we can actually afford to put in. Mm-hmm. Ta- the talk is a good talk. Um, I think those are great conversations. I just want to see if it's actually implementable. You got several shout outs in this speech. Uh, around education, community and technical college access, for instance. And Polis said last year we passed bipartisan legislation to improve math achievements, including more hours focused on strengthening student skills after school. And that's when he said thanks to Representative Puglisi. Uh, Now he says we need to expand out-of-school opportunities to boost science achievements. Uh, Do you want to speak just briefly to your priorities in terms of education now, by the way, that the state has kind of made good on its IOU to schools of many years? Yes, obviously, um, I support, we support the buy down and the um, budget stabilization factor. I think that's great for schools. Um, 
I'm proud of the math bill. It gave resources not just to schools, but also to parents to be able to help their children. And I think that parent engagement is such an important part if we're really going to push um, education forward. There are discussions about the science bill. I have yet to see it, but I do think investments in science are also incredibly important. You know, I, I want to focus on there, there can be a lot of bipartisan conversations and a lot of bipartisan work, and I, I think we are all committed to doing that. Um, we just have to have that seat at the table. What do you think about the governor continuing his effort to get Democrats to come around on especially income tax cuts? Do you think he's got any, uh, any juice to make that happen, or, or is this kind of the thing that he puts in the speech every year uh, to push them on, but, but he, his party is not going to budge? You know, I I hope that it's not just a soundbite that actually, I and I know he believes in it. Um, we've had several conversations, but as the leader of the Democratic Party in Colorado, if he can't get 20 Democrats to come to the table, I think we've got bigger problems. What do those conversations sound like, if you don't mind my asking? The ones you have with Governor Polis on the subject of taxation. You know, I, he's very libertarian. Um, we all know that when it comes to uh, taxes. And so there is definitely a lot of common ground there. But I think he has to make a real effort to push forward his party. Um, I don't know, you know, for the people in the room or your listeners, the, the Republicans all stood for um you know, lowering taxes, reducing the income tax, um, reducing property tax. But the Democrats did not seem um, as cohesive. And so, again, that is the role of the governor to get his party in line if that's really what's truly good for Coloradans across the state. On the flip side, uh, he also, shortly after that part of the speech, uh, kind of took Republicans to task for objecting to uh, the, the property tax bills during the special session. Do you see your party's priorities on uh, property taxes likely to, to move forward in this session? Or do you think it's weird? Everybody agrees on the problem, but it seems like the parties are very far apart on the solution here. You know, I don't know that we're really as far apart as people think. Um, yeah. I've had some really great conversations with uh, members of the Democratic Party in the House, and we all agree. And and some unlikely allies. Um, you know, there are some initiatives potentially coming forward from the Bell Policy Center that, you know, talks about getting the state out of the way when it comes to property taxes, which I completely agree. I never agreed the state should be involved to begin with because they get zero dollars in property tax. I think there's going to be potentially some fruitful conversations. And honestly, um, and not to belittle the governor's efforts, but I think the less he's engaged in the property tax conversation and actually lets the legislature work in a bipartisan way, hmm. there might be solutions that actually do come forward this session. Um, I'm hoping to bring forward a property tax bill that will actually be a part, not the only part, but a part of the long-term and sustainable solution. And we are having some great conversations with Democrats on the other side of the aisle. So um, maybe I'm being a little Pollyanna, but I'm incredibly optimistic about the progress we can make. Wait, this is fascinating. The less he's involved, the less Polis is involved in the conversation, the more he leaves it to the legislature, you think the odds of success are greater. Just speak to that briefly. I do. I um, Unfortunately, on this topic, he continues to break it, and I just want him to stop breaking it and let us try to find um, that long-term and sustainable solution. Before we let you go, uh, Rose Puglisi, do you want to speak perhaps to one policy that you're pursuing specifically on behalf of the folks in El Paso County, uh, maybe to give us just a sense of what they're talking about, what they're concerned about? 
affordability continues to be the number one issue outside of the border, which um, the Colorado State Legislature can't really do much about um, at this point. But outside of the border, they're really talking about affordability, Um, working with local governments around housing and not just, I mean, because what's affordable in one part of the state is definitely not affordable in other parts. But finding attainable housing, I think that that is good conversations. I think working with our local governments to find solutions, I think, is is the proper approach. Um, Recognizing that um, it is becoming unaffordable to live in Colorado. I'm a single mom. I raise two kids by myself. I have three jobs. I understand it is incredibly difficult. And the more we add taxes and fees and energy policies that make housing unaffordable, the less affordable or attainable housing there will be in Colorado. And that is definitely the conversations I'm having um, in the grocery stores, on the street, um, knocking doors. That's what people are most concerned about. And so income tax reduction is a bill I'm working on. Um, The future, hopefully, for a a piece of um, solving the property tax issue and making it more predictable and affordable for people across Colorado. I think those are the issues that my constituents are talking the most about. Thank you so much, Leader. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Representative Rose Puglisi, Republican from El Paso County and Assistant House Minority Leader. CPR Public Affairs Editor Megan Verlee helped guide our conversation just after Governor Jared Polis's State of the State Thursday. This session, Colorado lawmakers plan to regulate funeral homes after some egregious examples of mismanagement. Here's CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland. When news broke earlier this fall of hundreds of improperly stored bodies at a so-called green burial home in Penrose, Joe Walsh was horrified and disgusted. He's a funeral director in Aurora at 5280 Cremation and Funeral Services. How on earth can you honestly keep going and sleep at night doing that? I don't know. And it wasn't the first time Walsh was shocked about a Colorado funeral home. A former funeral home director from Montrose started serving a 20-year federal sentence for selling body parts from hundreds of corpses without permission. We don't want any event of any magnitude, whether it's one person or hundred or anything, ever to happen like that. That's why Walsh, who also heads the Colorado Funeral Homes Directors Association, wants stricter standards for people who work in the industry. Democratic Senator Dylan Roberts of Frisco plans to sponsor a bill to do that. Colorado is the only state, the only state out of 50 states that does not have any type of licensing for funeral home, crematory or mortuary directors or employees. Republican Matt Soper of Delta is another main sponsor. He says their bill will include apprenticeships, annual training, and an exam on not only the science, but things like ethics and morals. At least you're reminded what abusive a corpse is. And you're reminded that you're working for families when they're in their most vulnerable state and that you've been given tremendous trust. In 2022, lawmakers gave the state authority to inspect funeral homes. But with not even one full-time employee assigned to do it, the industry says that's something that could also improve. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. 
We have chosen our next book to read together for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. The project began when her 25-year marriage fell apart. The first thing that kind of rocked my world was how much it hurt. After thinking my whole life that heartbreak was sort of melodramatic and my friends were going through it, I, I just thought it was um, that they were being a little bit, you know, histrionic. But actually, you know, when it happened to me, I was like, oh my God, this is so devastating. And I felt it in my body, like I had been plugged into an amplifier, like I was like buzzing with anxiety and grief and fear. We have chosen her book as counter-programming ahead of the Valentine's Day barrage. So read Heartbreak, then join me and the author where else but Loveland, Colorado. Wednesday, February 7th, we'll be at the Rialto Theater. Find more information and tickets at CPR.org slash turn the page. When we come back, how a musical experience in Denver inspired Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. Monday is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. In anticipation, we want to share one of our favorite stories about how Dr. King came to hear one of his favorite hymns for the first time in Colorado. The song is called If I Can Help Somebody. It was performed at King's funeral in 1968. Here's a version recorded recently at the University of Denver from the Spirituals Project Choir. The soloist is Claudette Sweet. If I can help wanted to find out more about If I Can Help Somebody and its Denver connections. And so we've invited Vern L. Howard to our studio. He chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission and knows this story. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let me say that If I Can Help Somebody was written in 1945 by a woman named Alma Andrazzo. It was recorded by various gospel groups and by mainstream singers like Tennessee Ernie Ford. Doris Day did a version. But it seems that King didn't hear it until a visit to Denver in 1956. What was he doing here in 56? Uh, 1956, the New Hope Baptist Church in Denver was having their Women's Day program. And they had asked Dr. King to come and speak. The New Hope Baptist Church was pastored by M.C. Williams, and his wife was Anna Lee Williams. And as part of the program, she had sung the song. She was the singer. Yes, she was. And so he heard it at this church, 
And what do you know his reaction to have been? Well, at the time, Dr. King was so moved by the song. He was still the pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And on his way back to Montgomery, he stopped in at Atlanta, where his father was the pastor of Ebenezer and his mother was the uh, choir director. And he told her about it. He encouraged her to have the Ebenezer Baptist Church start singing the song. And then as he went back to Dexter Street, he had his choir start performing it as well. And so he spread it to Atlanta and then to uh, his his environs, yeah, Alabama. King apparently encouraged Mahalia Jackson to record the song, which she did in 1963. Uh, Let's hear some of her version. Okay. I cannot help somebody while I'm singing this song. You know my living. you spoke with Coretta Scott King about this song. What did she tell you? That when she had heard the song and saw how Dr. King was moved by it, she realized that this was a song that defined Dr. King, his life. I mean, when you think about the lyrics of the song, when you think about how it says, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I can help somebody with a word or a song. Now, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right there, he entered a word, a song, or a prayer. If I can cheer somebody with a word, a prayer, a song. That's how Dr. King looked at it. He looked at the Montgomery bus boycott, which was going on at the time. And when he thought about it, he said, you know what? The people we're dealing with, they're not evil. They're not bad people. They just know no better. So if I can help them with a song or a word to show how they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. It goes on to say, if I can do my duty as a good man ought, if I can bring back beauty to a world uprought. Let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist minister. And the, the final part of that is says, if I can spread love's message as the master taught then my living shall not be in vain. And mind you, everything he did was in a peaceful manner, as the master taught, and helping someone along the way as the master taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as the master taught. (laughs) So it resonated with Dr. King, and it was something that was deep in his heart. It stirred his soul. And it turns out that If I Can Help Somebody was a song he first heard in in Denver. On February 4th, 1968, just two months before he was assassinated, Dr. King gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he imagined his own funeral and said he wanted to be remembered for serving others, not for his fame or his accomplishments. And uh, he ended the sermon by quoting from If I Can Help Somebody. So let's, let's listen to that. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. 
say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. What goes through your mind when you hear that sermon? What goes through my mind was Dr. King came to terms with the fact that he was going to die, that he was going to die in the service of the civil rights movement. See, Dr. King was receiving, on average, 50 death threats a day. He said to Mrs. King and to his family that this was the sermon that he wanted to be eulogized with. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Vern L. Howard chairs the MLK Colorado Holiday Commission. We first spoke in 2015. Another meaningful bit of history. Colorado was among the first states to celebrate King's birthday as a holiday before the country did. President Ronald Reagan signed into federal law in 1983 this commemoration, but it wasn't celebrated until three years later. And so before it was in full effect, on April 4th, 1985, Colorado Governor Dick Lamb signed a bill making it a state holiday. Here's my co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Here in Colorado, the MLK holiday is marked by a diverse mix of signature events, such as the All People's Breakfast and Freedom March in Colorado Springs on Monday morning, and of course Denver's annual Marade, a march and parade that begins Monday morning with an opening ceremony at the MLK statue in Denver's City Park and proceeds down East Colfax Avenue, ultimately ending at Civic Center Park. Here's a fun fact. Denver's Marade is the largest MLK Day celebration in the country. Yes, the country. Organizers say last year, 92,000 people attended. Wow. And every year, there's also the MLK Jr. African American Heritage Rodeo held at the Denver Coliseum Monday night as part of the Western Stock Show. Lots of fun, and I attend every year with my family. For 34 years now, the Colorado Symphony partners with the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission to honor Dr. King with a free tribute concert, featuring the orchestra players alongside local performers. I attended earlier this week and, well, it was wonderful. Colorado Symphony under the direction of conductor Wilbert Lynn. This year, vocalist LaShondria Gray gave it her all on the stage. Here's some of her rendition of the Black National Anthem, written by famed American writer and civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson, who, by the way, is a graduate of my alma mater, now known as Clark Atlanta University. Lift every voice and sing. Sing. 
a song full of the faith that the darkness has brought us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has taught us. Facing the This year, the events held each year at the Betcher Concert Hall in the Denver Performing Arts Complex also featured the Young Voices Colorado Youth Choir. The Colorado Symphony's annual MLK Tributes event also features the Humanitarian Awards, which recognizes Colorado leaders who live and lead in the example of peace and equality, exemplified by Dr. King. Some of this year's honorees include Greg Moore, the first Black editor of the Denver Post, community activist LaDawn Sullivan of Brick, Black Resilience in Colorado, Colorado's first Black community fund, and Zoe Murphy Elwood, an East High School graduate now a pre-med student at Xavier University in New Orleans, who received the Outstanding Youth Award. Again, I attended earlier this week, and I believe it was a beautiful night for all who attended. We leave you with the sounds once again of vocalist LaShondria Gray singing a signature tune, and arguably the signature tune of the American Civil Rights Movement, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We Shall Overcome. is Colorado Matters for today with special thanks to Tom Hess and Tyler Bender. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News and KRCC.